The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Thank you and welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. The Civil War was primarily an infantry war. The days of cavalry charging across the open field were over by 1861, but there was still room for some extraordinary exploits, of which there is none more famous than the ride of Jeb Stuart's cavalry around George McClellan's Army of the Potomac in June 1862. We'll explore Stuart's finest hour, the ride around McClellan, by John J. Fox III tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio field headquarters on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina. Not from our usual base in the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University because they're doing something with the phones tonight. Don't know what it is. Don't know how that would affect the internet connection, but wasn't about to take a chance. So uh, I left plenty early, half an hour, giving myself plenty of time to get home. And then there was strange traffic and every light was red. And by the time I dashed into the home office, just had time to fire up Skype and get connected here. Uh, 
It turns out my computer, which is a 1958 Fisher-Price desktop, is making a loud fan noise that you may be hearing if you're listening live. Hopefully we can edit that out later. Uh, I apologize to listeners for that, but it's just one thing after another. Worse than that, uh, for the first time in the uh, many, many seasons of Civil War talk radio, I sent the wrong date to a guest, and Tom Parsons from the Corinth Civil War Interpretive Center, uh, who will be our guest on May 6th to talk about his work on the campaign and battle of Tupelo and Harrisburg, Mississippi. Uh, I sent him tonight's date, even though we're not talking till May 6th, uh, three weeks from now, and he, of course, loyally called in at the appropriate time, very professional, and I owe him a big apology, and uh, we'll get him back on the show in a few weeks. Once in a while, a guest forgets to call in. That's happened a few times, but this is the first time I've double booked the show and uh, sent someone the wrong date. Meanwhile, our original guest is standing by and we'll be talking in a few moments uh, with John Fox about uh, Stuart's ride. In the meantime, today is April 15th. Did I do the legal disclaimer? No, I'm not on campus, not speaking for each you. My guest won't speak for anyone but himself. There, that's done. Also, legally, it's tax day. If you're in the United States, your tax, federal tax returns due today. But nowadays, it's not a big deal. Everyone does it electronically, weeks, days, months in advance. No longer the annual story on the local news, news is in air quotes, uh, about all the people lined up to file their taxes. Also traditional is tax deductions, and you don't get one for donating to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks to everyone who has done so. You can go to www.impedimentsofwar.org, uh, I should add. Find out who's going to be on the show, who's been on the show, links to old shows, and uh, click the PayPal button there and send money to Civil War Talk Radio. I can use it to buy memory aids so I don't have a guest call in on the wrong date in the future, or I can use it to buy a faster car to get back here in time sooner, or I can use it to buy books for the show, which is the ostensible purpose and what I usually do with it. Uh, but you can't deduct it on those taxes. Uh, no 501c3 involved. It's also spring, beginning, middle of May, all kinds of good things are happening. For those of us from the Wolverine State, the Detroit Tigers have started off a glorious opening to their season, and the Red Wings are in the playoffs for the 240th consecutive season, so all is going well on those fronts. Coming up this weekend, nothing to do with the Civil War, but 40 years ago I went with my some classmates from the University of Michigan to the New England Literature Program, a experimental six-week spring term, all-encompassing academic experience in the wilderness of New Hampshire, where we read Thoreau and Emerson and Robert Frost and lived in the woods and the, uh, well, in cabins actually, and uh, experienced New England life. It was a turning point for me. I remember actually bringing a book of my own to read, which was about uh, Stonewall Jackson and the Battle of Kernstown. But it, uh, that program is marking its 40th anniversary this weekend, and I'll be off to join old friends in Ann Arbor for that. Uh, looking forward to it very much. 
Well, that's enough personal stuff. Let's get back to the Civil War. We've got good uh, programs, as always, coming up. Next week, Adam Dean with a uh, very different new take on the war in a book called An Agrarian Republic. Uh, you'll have to tune in and hear what that's about. On the 29th, Matt Hulbert has edited a book, co-edited a book on guerrillas in the Civil War, a topic of continuing uh, popularity. And then on May 6th, uh, Tom Parson from the Corinth Civil War Interpretive Center uh, with uh, apologies, Tom, again, uh, thank you for calling in tonight. We'll talk to you in three weeks about uh, the campaign and battle of Tupelo and Harrisburg, and I'm looking forward to that. And then on the 13th, Brian Jordan, Union veterans and their unending civil war. Always something new, interesting uh, to read about the civil war coming out. Those are just among the few among them, and we'll be looking forward to discussing them. Tonight, it's Stewart's ride around McClellan in 1862. Uh, the author, John J. Fox III. Uh, Mr. Fox, are you there? Sir, I sure am. Good evening, uh, uh, Dr. Prokopovich. And welcome to the show, uh, Captain Fox. You are, I believe, an airline pilot in the, uh, uh, during the, the day hours. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes, sir. So uh, what, what brought you to an interest in the Civil War when you're not uh, flying? Well, uh, I grew up in Richmond, and uh, right about the time I could barely walk, uh, my dad, uh, in, the, in the early, mid-1960s, began to take me around to uh, all the area battlefields around the Richmond area. And uh, I developed uh, that disease thanks to my father. And uh, it, it only grew, and uh, I can still remember, um, I can't remember whether it was a Time Life series, uh, but it was a series of, of books on the war that came out in the, in the 1960s, might have been the 1950s, and they, my parents had them on the shelf, and I can remember they had really great maps with, uh, they were colored, colored maps in there and, and showed uh, soldiers from both sides, and I can remember just sitting there on the floor in the den at the house pouring over the maps and being enthralled with places like, uh, I guess, Gettysburg, Devil's Den, um, and all, all the other battles. Um, and then, of course, uh, I went on to Washington Lee, where I got my, uh, my uh, bachelor's in history and then uh, uh, was a member of the Atlanta Civil War Roundtable when I was living down in the Atlanta area. And uh, there was some pretty prominent historians that belong to uh, to that roundtable that got me interested in doing doing serious study um, on the war. Well, th those but, maps, I remember exactly what you're talking about. And if if I were to do a study of people I've talked to on the show, certainly of, of your age or mine, uh, as to what got them interested, I would say that would be probably the number one thing. So many of us remember those maps with the bird's eye views of the battlefields. Mm -hmm. Little soldiers, sure yes. soldiers blue, blue and gray on each side, yeah. Mm -hmm. the, 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 they were magnificent, and they're still out there. People uh, still get them, but they, they brought a lot of us into the study of this. Yep. So mm -hmm. what, what about the, uh, the topic at hand, uh, the Stuart's Ride? Is this part of your general interest in the war in Virginia? Well, um, I, I try to find things to work on, to research that haven't really been done before, and... Um, when when I discovered 
uh, I had a book that came out in 2010 on the Battle of Fort Gregg, the Confederate Alamo, and about 18 months later, a year later or so, uh, I decided I needed to find something else to work on. So it would have been the summer of 2011. Um, I was I was looking around, and, and I'd always been interested in, in, in Stuart's ride, and I, I really was amazed at, at some of the things that he did um, over those three days. And when I discovered that, yeah, there had been some magazine articles about the ride, but nobody had done... Uh, any definitive research for a book on on the ride from from both sides from from the uh, uh, the Union cavalryman's perspective um, to the to the uh, Confederate cavalryman's perspective and, and and then also what was going on uh, behind the lines on each side as well um, amongst uh, amongst staff and all all the different units uh, when I when I realized that no, nobody had done a book on that that's that, that sort of it clicked for me and I began to do. Uh, hit all the archives and started to dig up lots and lots of material. You know, a, a lot of it uh, had, had had not uh, surfaced before. So um, that's what led to uh, led to the book. I have to ask a, a question with a, uh, a job that I assume must be interesting and demanding, uh, flying for a living. Where do you get time to do research? People ask me, oh, you're a history professor. You must do a lot of research. And I think, I don't have any time for that. <laughs> uh, uh, <clears throat> at least not, not, not right now, uh, maybe next year. Uh, but, uh, but so how do you work it into your schedule? Well, it, it helps to have an understanding family. I've got a, I've got a wonderful wife, and uh, uh, she grants me um, the time that I need to uh, – Disappear and 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 hit uh, you know historical societies and archives to, to pull this stuff together and then obviously once you pull it together then 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 it takes takes time to to to, to flesh the whole story out make sure it, make sure it uh, it works so th- thanks to her she she gives me that time and um, my kids uh, have understood this disease that I have um, so they they give. Uh, they allowed Dad to disappear upstairs in his office with the door closed for hours, hours at a time. Well, that is a good but, thing to have. Go, go ahead. Now, I was going to say you're talking about the demands of the airline industry. It seems like uh, 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 there, there continues to be some new challenge that pops up. Uh, you know, I, I look back when I when I first started uh, started with with in, in the airline business and. Uh, it uh, was a lot less complicated um, back then than it than it is right now. Um, so I thought well, I would I, add that. I can certainly believe that. I think that's true in a lot of a lot of industries. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I said in the introduction, the Civil War is an infantry war, and you point out that the Union and, and Confederate forces in Virginia in 1862 had very different ideas about uh, cavalry and how to use them. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you say something about the uh, uh, let's start with the Union how how they saw cavalry to be used in the war? Well, um, I think to to really gain an understanding of the Peninsula Campaign, you got to look at, at, at George McClellan and, and his thoughts on 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 cavalry. And uh, McClellan uh, believed that it would take at least three years to properly train uh, a cavalryman. And he believed that uh, by the time volunteer cavalry regiments, I mean, he, he believed the war would, of course, be over within three years. Um, 
So what happened when, when lots of these volunteer cavalry regiments began to arrive um, for duty with the Army of the Potomac, uh, he would piecemeal them out to division and even down to brigade level. And uh, so there was, there was no, uh, on, on, the, on the Union side during the Peninsula Campaign, there was no cohesive uh, uh, Union cavalry to respond to any emergency, any problems that would crop up. Um, the, those cavalrymen were, were, were detailed um, uh, to do some flashy duty. They, they, they were uh, used as headquarters guards. They, were, they, they escorted around VIPs. Uh, they weren't really used, you know, to, to screen the flanks of the army and to, and to perform uh, a reconnaissance, which is the which is the normal um, uh, mission of the cavalry. Um, and there wasn't a a one uh, cavalry commander in the Union in the Union Army of the Potomac um, that all those cavalry regiments reported to. Whereas the scene was completely different on the on the Confederate side, there was there was one commander of uh, of the uh, Army of Northern Virginia's cavalry, and that was that was um, uh, General Jeb Stuart. Well, that and obviously had, made a difference in terms of the centralized command. We're going to take so, a short break. We're going to come back and talk more about the cavalry of the Army of the Potomac and the Army of Northern Virginia, in particular what particularly what Jeb Stuart did in June 1862. Our guest is John J. Fox III. My name is Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with John J. Fox III, author of Stewart's Finest Hour, The Rider on McClellan, June 1862. 
We left off talking about how Union cavalry in spring of 1862 was parceled out in penny packets, a squadron here, a company there. Uh, whereas the Confederate cavalry was centralized under Jeb Stuart. Uh, Stuart himself, uh, how, how did he rise to command of the Confederate cavalry? Well, General, General Stuart uh, uh, initially uh, commanded uh, 1st Virginia Cavalry and, uh, and then moved, moved on up um, and uh, became, uh, became the, the, the head of, of cavalry uh, under, under General Lee. Um, and they, the, the two men had an acquaintance from when, when Lee uh, uh, was uh, in charge at West Point. Uh, that, that's where he initially met uh, uh, Jeb Stewart. And then they also worked together uh, in 1859 um, at Harper's Ferry during the John Brown raid. So um, General General Lee was uh, was was pretty familiar. Um, by by the time the Peninsula Campaign, June of 1862, rolls around, he, he's pretty familiar with uh, with the abilities of, of of General Stewart. Now, in this campaign, uh, McClellan brings the Union Army up uh, up the Peninsula from Fort Monroe. They're getting their supplies along their right flank, along from the York River, uh, and they're they're within striking distance of Richmond by mm-hmm. by June. Uh, how does uh, that's a strategic situation? Where where does this idea for a, a cavalry reconnaissance come from? Well, uh, General Lee. Um after he became the commander, once Joseph Johnston was wounded at Seven Pines at the end of May, General Lee takes over and begins to improve the defensive positions on the east and the northeast side of Richmond, which was frustrating to a lot of the Confederate soldiers. And meanwhile, McClellan was doing the same thing. Lee was trying to figure out, he wanted to go on the offensive because he realized that if 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 he stayed in those defensive positions around Richmond, that uh, the overwhelming numbers that McClellan had and firepower would eventually create a siege situation. Um, and so he had a discussion uh, with with General Stewart about uh, about which which area to attack. And in fact, Stewart uh, at the beginning of June sent a letter. Um, suggesting that maybe uh, an attack on the Union uh, left flank might work. Well, Lee had already thought that the right flank was where to go. So um, he, he met with, uh, with General, General Stewart um, on June the 10th. And it, it, in fact, two days before, Stewart had sent John Mosby with several men out of the 1st Virginia Cavalry on a reconnaissance um, around through central Hanover County. And, and when Mosby came back uh, about a day and a half later with information that the right flank was open, um, Stewart immediately took that information to Lee. And they discussed um, going on a reconnaissance around the, uh, around the right flank. Uh, I, I don't believe Lee wanted to necessarily take the word of what Mosby, Mosby said because he wasn't familiar with Mosby at that point. Um, so he, he gave uh, orders to uh, General Lee, uh, or um, excuse me, General Lee gave orders to General Stewart to uh, to, to mount this uh, this reconnaissance around the right flank uh, to go down towards 
uh, Tottapotomoy Creek in the ridge. There's, there's a pretty big uh, big ridge that's on the southeast bank of the uh, of the creek uh, to see if uh, there were um, if McClellan had his had his right flank anchored um, on the uh, Pamunkey River there. Um, so that's how that's how the whole uh, the whole uh, idea for this uh, cavalry raid, what the, what the reporters in, in 1862 referred to as the Great Chickahominy Raid, that's that's how how the whole thing began. Uh, it's really striking from the Union perspective that you've got this massive army, uh, the right flank, the northern flank of which is is in the air, as they uh, would say, is not anchored on. A ridge or a river or any particular position, right. it's not being screened by Union cavalry, and immediately behind it is the main Union supply base exactly. where, at White House, where, where ships unload all the supplies. It, it's almost as if McClellan's daring the Confederates to uh, unhinge his right flank. Uh, who was supposed to be guarding that flank? Well, um, at the beginning of June. Um, Four companies from from the Fifth uh, United States Cavalry had been sent um, to Old Church, and Old Church is uh, a small little crossroads village, and it's about 14 miles southeast of Hanover Courthouse, and it's in the central part of, of Hanover County. And the reason that uh, those four companies uh, went to Old Church was they were going to um, patrol the area. Um, the road network and the area all the way up along the Pamunkey River, extending up up as far as uh, Hanover Courthouse. Um, part of McClellan's problem is that he's, he's he's hired Alan Pinkerton to give him intelligence assessments uh, of, of of the number of uh, rebels that General Lee has to defend Richmond, and I, and I think a lot of people are pretty familiar uh, with uh, Pinkerton's problem with math, and he was given huge numbers of Confederate soldiers, uh, upwards of 150,000 men uh, by about June the 10th, 150,000 Confederate soldiers defended Richmond, which was just about twice what General Lee actually had. Um, So McClellan constantly thinks that he's outnumbered. And he that, that's one reason that he doesn't extend his infantry all the way to the right flank on the Pamunkey River, because he just doesn't believe that he's got the men to be able to do that, which is why he sent those four cavalry companies. Um, but it, it's still amazing to me that um, there really wasn't any infantry extended on that right flank much beyond uh, Beaver Dam Creek and the Mechanicsville area. So... Tell us about the the uh, the raid itself. When when Stewart sets out, how many men does he take with him? Stewart uh, handpicks about twelve hundred cavalrymen to accompany him on this mission, and uh, they're going to come out of uh, the first uh, first Virginia Cavalry, which is commanded by uh, Colonel Fitzhugh Lee, which is General Lee's nephew. Um, the uh, other major regiment is going to be the Ninth Virginia Cavalry which is Colonel Rooney Lee, which is General Lee's middle son. And then uh, there's eight companies out of the 4th Virginia Cavalry. And uh, there uh, are there, there's uh, three companies out of uh, the Jefferson Davis Legion, uh, one company from Mississippi, one from Georgia, and one from Alabama. There's a company of uh, rangers out of uh, South Carolina. And uh, Stewart 
believed that since he was going to be moving through central Hanover, possibly as far as New Kent County, he wanted to have some scouts from New Kent County. So he grabbed some scouts out of the 3rd Virginia Cavalry from New Kent. And then also uh, Lieutenant uh, James Breft uh, brought uh, two cannons out of the uh, Stuart Horse Artillery to accompany, uh, accompany the column. So it, it totals up to about 12, uh, 1,200 men. So this is really a, a reconnaissance in force. It's not just a little raid of exactly. a few guys. Uh, and the plan is go around McCollum's right flank, see what's there, come back, give Lee the information. Exactly. Uh, and, and now Lee, Lee, uh, Lee wants to know, you know how porous that right flank is because his plan, his, 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 his master plan, his strategic plan is that he's going to be bringing uh, uh, Stonewall Jackson from the valley, and he wants to wants to to put the Stonewall Jackson's troops uh, through that right flank, uh, which is which is why he wants he sent a Stewart there to see if if if, it, if that plan is going to work. So off they go. They they start riding. They encounter very few Union soldiers, a few cavalry here and there. Uh, at some point. They they they've discovered what they need to know. There's there's no force out here. The the, the right flank is open, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you pinpoint uh, Tunstall's station as the place where they they they've broken through, got the information, and now the decision is go back the way you came or do something different. Uh, well, um, in, in the it was actually a little bit before Tunstall Station. It was it was at Old Church. Um, mm-hmm. Old Church is just to the southeast, uh, about two and a half, three miles southeast of of Tottapotomoy Creek Ridge. That's that prominent landmark that that uh, General Lee was concerned um, whether whether it was defended or not. So uh, Stewart and his men uh, have have gotten by middle of the afternoon of of, of Friday, uh, June the thirteenth. They've gotten all the way past Tottapotomoy Creek Ridge with uh, a little bit of skirmishing here and there with, with some, some Union cavalry. And you get to Old Church, which is the bivouac site of that fifth, those four companies out of the 5th United States Cavalry. At that point, uh, Stewart has discovered, yes, there's plenty of holes in this right flank, and that, yes, uh, I, think, I think a large infantry attack here would have a good chance of being successful. Um, so he's got a decision to make at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Friday, June the 13th. Um, which way does he go to get this information back to General Lee as quickly as possible, but also as safely as possible? Um, so that's that, that's where his big decision occurs. Um, and the obvious choice would be to just go back the way you came, but he doesn't exactly. do that. He, uh, he, he's come under some criticism, some Monday morning quarterbacking about, about that decision, um, of course, uh, from... Um, from a, you know some Confederate officers as well uh, as as some historians, uh, but he he in in his mind he he is he's been behind Union lines for uh, at least uh, actually a little little bit longer than six hours, and he's bumped into some some Union cavalry already up around Hanover Courthouse. He's also bumped into cavalry down around Haw's shop. So he's got to figure that the word is spread to senior. Uh, Union com- commanders that there's been a breakthrough on the right flank. So he's got to figure that that, that if he re- retraces his steps, he's going to run into probably 
not only cavalry, but probably a large number of, of Union infantrymen as well. So he's gonna, they're going to have to fight their way out. And there's not a whole lot of room to maneuver once he heads back towards Hanover Courthouse if he gets into trouble. Um, so he does the complete unthinkable. And uh, instead of retracing his steps, he makes a command decision that uh, he's going to continue deeper southeast, deeper behind Union lines, which is not where they're going to expect him to be. And he's hoping to be able to get, go towards Tunstall Station and then turn south uh, and get across the Chickahominy River and then come back on the left flank of the Union Army, basically doing a circle uh, around, around George McClellan's army. Uh, it's it's a you know, breathtaking thing to do. And you point out there's been some Monday morning quarterbacking about it. And as I was reading your book, it occurred to me, 1,200 cavalry, and, and you, know, you mentioned it takes a long time to train cavalry. The, the rebel cavalry has more experienced riders. But still, uh, you don't just raise 1,200 cavalry in an afternoon. That's a lot of men to lose. And mm-hmm. Stuart, if he loses, he's going to lose them all. They're all going to be captured. Sure. So it's it's a daring decision, which uh, which makes it all the more remarkable. And uh, at you know there there are several points there where he he thought that uh, you know they were going to get their goose cooked, so to speak, um, especially when they were trying to get across the the, uh, the Chickahominy River. And oh, by the way, um, by the time they've gotten down to the Chickahominy River, they've got. Uh, a fair number of Union prisoners with them, along with uh, extra horses and mules, um, which have extended the length of their column and slowed them down considerably. So when, when, when I think about this situation, I think, wow, what must have been going through the minds of the men in his column, um, expecting, you know, at every bend in the road, they're going to get hit with with uh, a, a Union cavalry attack, or are they going to run into some infantry or or or, or, or something? Um, it's uh, it, it's just amazing the stress those guys uh, must have been under, and they, and, they, and they weren't getting a whole lot to eat, and uh, so they're suffering from a little bit of you know hungry, uh, empty stomachs, and and also uh, some fatigue from uh, from it was a hot day, Friday, June the thirteenth, which extended into June the fourteenth. And uh, uh, they're not getting sleep either. They're, they're spending their whole time in the saddle because if they stop to go to sleep, they're going to get caught. So they are riding. Now, you mentioned they didn't have a lot to eat, but they did have, some of them did, because they would occasionally run into Union sutlers' wagons and mm-hmm. help themselves to whatever. Uh, they also get remarkably close to the Union supply base at White House. They don't. Exactly. How how close did they get, and why didn't Stewart go there? Tunstall Station is about four um, about four miles from the uh, the main Union supply depot at White House Landing, and uh, by the time their column reaches Tunstall Station, um, it's beginning to get dark, and uh, they've uh, they've destroyed. There, there was a, a uh, a side supply base that was at uh, Garlic's Landing, which is a little bit upstream from White House. He's already sent a squadron down there to, to tear that up, and they've set several boats on fire. They've captured a number of soldiers, shot some guys, and uh, and then they that those squadrons then come down to Tunstall Station to meet up with the rest of Stewart's Stewart's men. And there's also numerous 
columns of smoke going up into the air, basically signaling exactly where Stewart is or has been recently. Um, so he knows that uh, he can't spend a whole lot of time at Tunstall Station where he's going to get caught. And he figures that he really wants to go towards White House Landing. So does Fitchie Lee, because that's fa- that Fitchie Lee, um, White House Landing, is, is the Lee family property. Um, uh, so it's another another piece of property that gets taken by by federals federal soldiers, the federal army from from the from uh, Robert E. Lee's family. But uh, Stewart just I would I think it's a good decision that he makes uh, not not to go the four miles on over to uh, uh, to White House Landing to to try to tear that up because that would have delayed him even more and he probably as it turns out he would have gotten some of his guys caught um, if if he had gone and done that. So rather than doing uh, uh, doing what he really wanted to do, tear up White House Landing, they they elect to continue southeastward as it's getting dark uh, from Tunstall Station and head towards uh, towards the Chickahominy River to try to figure a way across. And uh, it, I don't know if you've sold the uh, screen rights for this book yet, but the the scene <laughs> where they're getting ready to uh, uh, where they're thinking about what to do and. You know, from White House Landing, there's a railroad track that, mm-hmm. on which supplies go to the rest of the Union Army, and a train shows up in the middle of all this, full of Union soldiers uh, who don't know what they're riding into, and they ride right through the Confederate force, yeah. uh, which uh, shoots at them. That that that's really a remarkable scene. Uh, yes, uh, that, that's the Richmond and York River Railroad, uh, which extends all the way to White House Landing. And in fact, the bridge. There was a railroad bridge uh, that continues across uh, the Pamunkey River right there on into a place called West Point, and uh, that bridge had early been burned by uh, by Confederates on the on the uh, move uh, from the Yorktown area back towards Richmond. Uh, but anyway, what when Stewart and his men shortly after they arrive at Tunstall Station. Uh, uh, they he sends some men down the track to burn burn a trestle there. Um, they've also got a roundup. Uh, there was there was a small inf- infantry detachment uh, that was guarding uh, Tunstall Station. They round those guys up, and uh, while they're doing this, uh, all of a sudden they hear a noise coming from the southwest, from the you know from from uh, the Chickahominy River area. And this railroad from White House Landing all the way uh, to just east of Richmond is controlled by federal troops, so they know that the train's going to be a federal train. So guys start running around trying to figure out ways to, to knock the lock off of the switch so they can throw the switch and the train will run into the siding. They, they start putting logs across the tracks, and uh, that train shows up. And the uh, engineer was actually slowing to take on some water um, when all of a sudden things didn't look quite right. And so he uh, opened the throttle back up and um, and sped through, the, through Tunstall Station. Um, Meanwhile, uh, Stewart had assembled uh, one of his regiments uh, in a railroad cut, so they were firing into the uh, train cars from both sides. And uh, it really is a dr- dramatic the- scene. It, it, it's a dramatic scene. We're gonna have to take another short break here, okay. though. Uh, we'll come back talk more about Stewart's ride around McClellan with our guest John V. Fox III. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio.
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with John J. Fox III, author of Stewart's Finest Hour, The Ride Around McClellan, June 1862. Remarkably, there really has not been another book on this topic. Every Civil War student has read, heard about it at some point, but no one's really traced the steps until now. And in our first two segments, we've followed Stuart's men as they move around the right flank, the northern flank of the Army of the Potomac, uh, get behind, uh, approach uh, the, the main federal supply base at White House Landing, but decide it's time to keep moving and make the daring decision to go all the way around the federal army. By this time, uh, John, by this time, certainly the Union forces must be aware that there's a Confederate cavalry in the rear of the army. They must be doing something about it. Yes, they are. Um, But what, what still amazes me is that no senior Union officer is going to learn about this uh, emergency this breakthrough on the right on their right flank until a little bit before three o'clock uh, in the afternoon, and that's going to be Brigadier General Philip St. George Cook, who is uh, at uh, what is his unit is the Cavalry Reserve of the Army of the Potomac, and he is at Cavalry Reserve headquarters near Gaines's Mill, about six miles uh, from Old Church, and. A little bit before three o'clock, and by the way, Friday, June the thirteenth is his fifty-third uh, birthday, and I dare say that uh, General Cook is not going to get a get. A, he's never going to receive a worse birthday present for probably the rest of his life. Um, when this when this uh, uh, out of breath courier rides up 
to Gallery Reserve Headquarters and gives him the news about what's going on. So this is uh, right around 3 o'clock when Jeb Stewart was making the decision at Old Church which way to go with the information back to take it back to Lee. At the same time, uh, Philip St. George Cook is learning about this emergency, and he's got to make some decisions about who he wants to send to respond and which direction he wants them to respond in. Um, and uh, that is uh, another interesting part of the story as, as they begin to, frankly, very slowly um, decide uh, how they want to respond to try to, tr- try to chase after Jeb Stewart. Well, they, they they don't go very fast. Uh, Cook has a personal reason to want to capture Stewart. Certainly, yeah. He uh, uh, Philip St. George Cook is Jeb Stewart's father-in-law. Um, <laughs> they were both Virginians, and uh, Philip St. George Cook was a West Point class of 1827. Um, and when the war began, uh, Jeb Stewart, of course, resigned his commission uh, from the U.S. Army and sided with Virginia and then Confederate forces. And he was incensed that his father-in-law, who was from Leesburg, Virginia, elected to stay with the Union Army. So there was bad blood between the two men. Uh, and uh, Jeb Stewart, in fact, had told a number of his staff officers that he would like nothing better than to whoop his uh, father-in-law uh, on the field of battle. Well, the the opportunity would be there if if Cook's cavalry would move faster. But... It almost comes about anyway when, when Stuart starts riding south around behind the, the rear of the Army of the Potomac. They have to cross the Chickahominy River, and they uh, the, the bridges that used to be there have all been burned in the, the conflict that's already taken place uh, that season. How are they going to get across that river? Well, Stuart, uh, Stuart and his men have, have ridden all night um, from Tunstall Station. And they've ridden south towards the Chickahominy River. So uh, right as the sun is coming up um, on Saturday, June the 14th, um, they, are, they are riding toward a ford called Christian's Ford. And uh, there's a lieutenant uh, in, the, in the 3rd Virginia Cavalry by the name of Lieutenant Jones Christian. And he approaches Stewart uh, while they're riding southbound and tells him that uh, I think I, I, can, I know a good place to cross the Chickahominy River that Union cavalry will not be familiar with because that Christian's fort is on Jones Christian's family property. So he leads them as the sun's coming up, uh, this long column of, of tired rebel cavalrymen, to Christian's fort only to find out that the river is flooded and it's well uh, over the banks right there and, this, and the current is so swift that it's going to be dangerous to get one man across, much less 1,200 men, along with uh, some 200, uh, 160 prisoners and a bunch of extra horses. So uh, General Stewart shows up, sees the predicament that they're in. In fact, Rooney Lee swims uh, across with his horse and almost drowns. Uh, the horse almost drowns, too. And uh, Rooney Lee gets back out on the, uh, on the, on the uh, north side of the Chickahominy River and uh, admits that he thinks that they're all caught. Stuart rides up right about that time and realizes that there's no way to safely get all these guys across, and they don't have enough time to get that many guys across. So they ride south, uh, east, uh, along the bank of the river towards uh, Jones, Jones Bridge, which had previously been burned, as you mentioned, 
but uh, some, uh, some cavalrymen from the area assure him that they think that there's enough, enough uh, material still left in the area right there that they'll be able to rebuild the bridge. And sure enough, when they arrive, there is an old barn that's about 150 yards away from the riverbank, and they, they proceed to uh, destruct that barn over the period of several hours, uh, and the lumber that is there is going to be used to reconstruct a flimsy and narrow uh, bridge for them to get uh, get the cavalrymen across. They swim the horses there for the most part, but then they've got to reinforce that bridge um, because Stewart's worried that uh, the initial bridge that's built is not going to be strong enough to support the uh, the two cannons artillery pieces that they need to get across. He doesn't want to lose those or leave them behind. So they they make this extraordinary effort. And here again, when you're when you're filming the movie of this, you just picture the scene, and they go, "Ah, all that work, we did it. We built the bridge. Now we're well. Where are they?" Well, they, they, by the way, if you, if you've got any contacts in Hollywood, let me know because yeah. I, I, I've always <laughs> I've always thought that this this is a, a made for TV uh, event that would 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 be quite quite interesting to watch. But once um, once uh, this this, this the uh, cavalrymen begin, begin to troop across this bridge. Um, they, they actually send the prisoners across first. Um, they discover that they are actually on an island that is in the Chickahominy <laughs> River. And you know, by the way, the island's pretty much flooded too. Uh, this area is all swampy anyway, even without a lot of rain. And they've had some significant rain over the previous several days. So uh, they discover they're on an island and they're going to need to cross. Uh, the south branch of the Chickahominy right there that's on the other side of the island to get uh, to the south bank um, and head towards Charles uh, City Courthouse. So they have to find, they, they, they ride towards the west end of the island and they discover another ford, uh, which of course takes even more time uh, for them um, uh, to get across. So, uh, and we're talking several hours. We're talking about three hours to, to or Three, three, three and a half hours to rebuild this bridge, the first bridge, uh, and then get the guys across. And now they're slowed down even more because they've got to got to ford the river uh, to get to the south bank. Well, All the while expecting to get hammered um, in the rear uh, by uh, some a massive uh, Union cavalry force. And and the cavalry is gradually making its way there. Yes. Um, yes. There are so many interesting stories in this book. I just want to say a little bit about the book itself. Uh, one point is that it has really excellent maps that help you follow the uh, uh, follow the story. Uh, and and any Civil War book needs good maps, but this one really does have it. It also has uh, wonderful photographs, uh, including a lot of them of the scenes as they are today. Uh, there's directions for touring if you want to follow this. Uh, if I were going to push back on one thing in here, there the, you describe it on a number of occasions the civilians that are encountered. Uh, some of them are, are slaves. Uh, some you occasionally describe as servants, and that always gives me a little creepy feeling because they're not really servants. They're enslaved. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't have a choice. But uh, it's a word quibble, and I won't push any further on that. Mm -hmm. uh, as they get across that second branch of the Chickahominy River, they are, Stuart, Stuart's men are finally on the road back to uh, Confederate lines, and 
uh, people know uh, that he's going to, the reader knows by this time why they're going to make it, and, and indeed they do. But I want to get to the sort of $64 question of this, uh, and you do address this in the book. Having gone through this incredible adventure, uh, run an entire loop around the Federal Army, what does this accomplish? The the loop, um, well, he, he does succeed in getting the information back to General Lee. Of mm-hmm. course, General Lee has been quite concerned because uh, Stewart's been pretty much out of touch for about 76 hours. Um, but he, he does does get that information to Lee that, uh, yes, the uh, right flank is open uh, and in, inviting, very inviting for, for uh, an infantry attack there. Um, the other thing is that it was quite an adventure for all the, all the rebel cavalrymen that were involved, and uh, they, uh, a number of them wrote, wrote uh, that it was one of the greatest adventures of their lives. Um, and they wrote some pretty flowing accounts after the war. But uh, it, it, uh, it illustrated for Lee that, uh, that his, uh, his attack that was gonna, is going to come uh, beginning on, on June the 26th at Mechanicsville uh, has a good chance of being successful. So what, what Lee then does is uh, sends orders uh, the following day to uh, Stonewall Jackson out in the valley to, uh, to get his troops together and get them moving towards Richmond. And uh, that is uh, going to going to then launch the seven days battles. You and it also it, oh, it also um, uh, re- reinforced for not only southern journalists but also northern journalists that uh, that uh, General Stewart was was a, a pretty phenomenal pretty phenomenal soldier and uh, put put his uh, put his name in history books. This, this is the first major event that, uh, that put, puts his name into the history books. You, you make a comparison uh, to the Doolittle Raid of 1942, uh, mm-hmm. when American bombers attacked Japan. It's a minor raid, only 12 airplanes, but it has a great psychological effect. I thought that was a very interesting comparison. Uh, talk about that. Sure. Um, well, Doolittle, uh, on his raid... No, no airplane, no bombers had ever been launched from a carrier. So, um, pretty, pretty uh, risky thing to do. Um, and they also have to launch those bombers well away from the Japanese mainland, so they won't get picked up by uh, by Japanese patrols. So, uh, I kind of compare what what those guys did. You know, bombing bombing uh, Japan, and uh, uh, the U.S. had not had a whole lot of success in 1942 in the Pacific, and uh, Doolittle's raid really enabled a lot of uh, a lot of Americans uh, to to wave their flags again. And uh, Stewart, um, the success of Stewart's raid really bolstered uh, uh, the Confederate uh, cavalry arm. It gave a boost to Confederate morale because uh, in in 1862 there had been some significant uh, setbacks for the Confederacy. Um, so uh, the fact that uh, this raid was was successful, and uh, uh, Jeb Stewart's name is splashed all over the headlines in newspapers north and south, um, really really gave the gave Southerners a reason to wave their flags. And uh, uh, so that 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 that's where those those two comparisons come from. And uh, Jeb Stewart also it's 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 the first 
uh, first raid on this continent um, of cavalry, um, deep behind enemy lines, and he also um, brings along horse artillery for, for added firepower in case he got into trouble um, behind the lines. So it really is, uh, uh, it, it has these effects beyond its pure military effect. It's, it's a very interesting comparison there. Well, we are unfortunately at the end of our hour, but listeners, you'll, if you enjoy a good tactical story, you will enjoy Stewart's finest hour, The Ride Around McClellan, June 1862. Uh, it's published by Angle Valley Press. The author is John J. Fox III. Uh, John, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for being on the show. Well, thank you very much for having me, and uh, um, I wish you uh, uh, the best of luck in, uh, with the Detroit Red Wings in the playoffs, and uh, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to be running down to watch the Washington Capitals, my big team, who uh, are about an hour into their match now. <laughs> well, there we go. Uh, good luck to them as well. Maybe we'll meet in the final. Um, uh, be neat. Not the, it wouldn't be the final, semifinal. No, it wouldn't be the final, no, because now uh, they're... Red Wings the, uh, aren't in the West anymore. That's right. Right. Anyway, right. thank you all. And listeners, as always, thanks for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.